Welcome to the STEM Tea Podcast. I'm your host for tonight, Andrea Marshall. As you can tell, I'm not our usual host. Dr. Hinton has graciously given us his platform for International Women's Day. So I will be your host for tonight, and we have two lovely guests joining us. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? <laughs> well, you know, it's a podcast, so no one can see this, but Heather and I are both pointing to each other. <laughs> My name is Mariah Sweetwine, and I am a collaborator of the Hinton Lab, and I'm also an assistant professor at the University of Washington in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology in Seattle, Washington. Awesome, and I'm super excited to be here. I'm Heather Beachley. I'm a postdoc in AJ Henton's lab, so Dr. Henton's lab, and I'm also, of course, sit right across from the Dr. Marshall, who is <laughs> heading up this podcast, but super excited to be here, and I'm excited to get into some quick questions. All right. So we are taking over the podcast for this episode to celebrate International Women's Day. Just a little background, International Women's Day has been celebrated since 1910, and each year they take on a theme to empower women and highlight the issues that impact women most globally. So we are very excited to have this episode. And this year's theme is embracing equity. So to begin, would you both explain or tell us what you feel when you hear embracing equity? Well, first of all, I didn't know that we've been celebrating International Women's Day since 1910. And I am right. What were we celebrating? We didn't get the vote until 1919. Right. Well, that's what they worked for. It was really part of the women's suffrage movement and pushing towards giving women's voice out there. Yeah. And I think that's a good example, right, of equity versus equality. And I think the idea being that equity is people get what they need to be able to succeed on a level platform with each other. Whereas equality is people get the same things, whether or not those are what they actually need. And so, you know, in the context of science and being scientists and being faculty or postdocs, you know, we're talking about financial resources or mentorship resources or lab space or national recognition and all of those things, I think, come into play. You cannot see us, but there was much head nodding <laughs> to all of those points. <laughs> Heather, what does equity mean to you? Yeah, that's a great point. So the first thing is I completely agree with Mariah with the sense of having this opportunity to have the resources. I think that's number one for me as a postdoc. I've been lucky and I guess a little bit of scientific luck to get these grants funded. And so it's helpful, of course, because we need these resources as a scientist. But I also think about the research that I do. So, of course, our lab is a mitochondria lab, and we study all things that beautiful organelle. I am trained as a cancer biologist. No one else in the lab does cancer biology, just like I don't do the amazing neuroscience that Andrew does. But as a cancer biologist, I really, my main research focus is in health disparity research. And so in order to really apply these thoughts of equity and social determinants of health, I really consider my research. And since I study a molecular subtype that disproportionately affects Black and Latina women, it's really important for me to really make sure that this research that I do on a daily basis is really helpful to current generations and future generations to come. That's kind of why we stay in the lab for 99,000 hours a week, if that's even possible. <laughs> but we do so in order to really be able to have something pay off, right? Something, some little thing we find in the lab leads to this discovery, which of course then in turn does provide the equity in some form or fashion. That is awesome. And you've already led into my next question, which was, could you tell me a little bit about your journey? So can you feed off of that and just explain? So how did you get to become the wonderful, excellent cancer biologist that you are today? Well, and I keep giving all these compliments and need it. So <laughs> I started off with, a, I guess you could say, more of a securitist route. So I started off in animal sciences at Auburn University. I was going to be a vet. You can tell me I wasn't going to be a vet. I knew I wanted to be doctor. I was Kennedy at that point to be a vet. And so I was pre-vet, graduated, and worked in the animal clinic for two years. 
And I didn't really like fluffy and scruffy that were brought to the vet. I really more so liked the microscope. And that's really where my my passion for science really began. I had one of the vets that was like, Heather, you sure do love finding hookworms and looking at these urine analyses. <laughs> I was like, yep, I do. I love it. And she was like, girlfriend, let me tell you something. I think you, you're missing your calling. You know, you need to go into discovery. I said, discovery? What's a scientist? Bill Nye? I really had no idea what that meant. And so <laughs> at that point in time, I then went back and got a master's degree and then I got a PhD and the rest is history. But really, my route is not straightforward, it's not linear. But all of that led me to Meharry Medical College, where I completed my PhD. And Meharry Medical College is an historically Black college that obviously is a medical school as well, hence the name. But what was so important is we were really big in community. It's really big on making sure we optimize health equity. And in that regard, it led me to study health disparity research, which is how I came to work with triple negative breast cancer, as I mentioned earlier. So that's kind of my route to becoming the cancer biologist. And once again, it was not linear. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Mariah. I never became a cancer biologist. (laughs) (laughs) So you can be, you can be be if you want. There's plenty of room for you here. So I have a maybe even less linear path. I am a cell biologist also, but my focus in my lab is really on the cell biology of the kidney and in particular of the aging kidney. And I started out, let's go all the way back to high school. So I was a high school dropout. Okay. And I dropped out of high school and I didn't tell my mom. And then she came home from work one day in the middle of the day and told me I had to go back to school. And I was shocked that she knew that I had dropped out of high school. Okay, <laughs> all right. She was like, you know, they oh, call wow. me every day when you don't come, they call me. So that's that's my brilliant journey. Like that's how brilliant I was at 15 when I decided I didn't need to go to high school anymore. <laughs> but I went to an alternative high school. And for me, that was really important. I never was very comfortable in traditional academics and that continued all the way through my undergraduate career. And so As an undergrad, it took me 10 years to finish. I have double degrees. So zoology, I have a bachelor of science in zoology and a bachelor of science in in cell and molecular biology. But it took me 10 years to do that because I worked full time while I was doing that. And I also uh, had some kids that I mentored that and sort of took care of part time. But I really was uncomfortable in an academic space. And I always was really concerned about failing. And so If I didn't do well on something, I would just stop and leave, which is funny because I became a scientist, which is basically like, that is the failure all day, every day. (laughs) But what happened for me is that I was washing dishes in a lab in part to pay my way through college. It was one of the three jobs that I had. And I just was really curious about what they were doing. And they finally gave me a little project. And once I got a taste of that, I never went back. And so I always had a job in a lab for at least one of my jobs that whole time. And when I graduated, I did a post-baccalaureate year that was supported by a diversity supplement through the NIH. And then I went on to grad school and I could not believe I got into grad school. I was shocked, Mm. really. But I, you know, by the time I applied, I had a first author paper. I really knew science. I really knew what I was doing and what I wanted to do. And so I had several offers and, you know, choices that I could make. So I did that and I did a PhD in cell and molecular biology. And then I did a teaching and research fellowship and I thought I wanted to teach and I really loved teaching, but I really missed doing research full time. And so I finished that postdoc, did a second postdoc, that postdoc work was in kidney. And that's when I met the love of my life, who is not my family, my (laughs) non-familial love of my life, which is the kidney. And I just like, I never looked back. I was like, I got into the kidney and I was like, oh my God, this is the best organ system ever. Yeah, But I still didn't have enough papers to really be competitive for a faculty position. And so I came back home to Seattle where I got a third postdoc in kidney. And then from there, I moved on as an acting instructor in an aging lab. And that's really where everything kind of meshed. What I really want to say about that is since we're talking about equity and we're talking about women in equity, moving on to that aging lab was the first time that I understood the difference between equity and equality because it was the first time that I really had a mentor who looked at me, saw me, saw what my strengths were, saw what my weaknesses were, and really wanted to help me address my whole career as a holistic path. And, you know, things fell into place for me so quickly 
once I started being mentored by this person in a way that I, I really didn't understand what I had been missing in the past before that happened. That is phenomenal. And thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's very important for everyone in academia to hear different stories. I think, you know, once you enter grad school, we're all mostly sold that there's this one straight linear path that everybody takes. It's you go in, you go in the lab 12 hours a day, you grind at the bench, you do get really good at your experiments. Of course, you're just given, you will have these first author papers, you will get grants, you will go on, and you will have a faculty position at the end. But for the majority of people, this is not the case. And I think so many of us who enter into academia or who are drawn to science, we have kind of a certain personality type where we are very much afraid of failure or of not getting the high mark of not being the best at things. And so why is wait, Heather's laughing. <laughs> Heather, why are you laughing? Well, because fail. Well, no, 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 not that. I feel quite a bit. But I think the difference is I'm very extroverted. And I put myself out there and I fail a lot, but I'm okay with the failure. Like, I think that one thing I learned very early in grad school, that's why I'm laughing. I know y'all can't see me, but growth is uncomfortable, right? Right. Like, I feel like as I've gotten older and matured a bit, I feel like (laughs) I'm okay with, you know, I say all the time, I'm just going to shoot my shot, right? Like, will it land? It may not. You know, like that's, that's kind of my new journey. Like, especially with social media, it's like, I reach out to million dollar companies all the time and I'm like, Hey, I can be your influencer. Right. Some say hey, no. And some okay. say yes. And I'm like, okay, come on. Mama's got to pay a credit card off. Right. That had nothing to do with this <laughs> conversation. But the point I'm making is, is it's really no. for me, I don't mind failing. Like, yeah, grad school, we are sold this, you know, pipe from the, Oh yeah, it's just easy. And it's fluid. It's not, but I'm just of the opinion that the failing means I at least tried and I'm doing mm-hmm. something the right way. So I don't mind failing. I just, I'm different though. No, I kind of like that. I love that. Me. I feel like having more of that would be very beneficial because I mean, the facts are the facts. If you look at women in academia, traditionally we undersell ourselves. We typically don't negotiate. We don't typically stand up for our rights. We feel like, well, I know sometimes I have experienced the concern that, well, if I stand up for myself and I be assertive, that I will be taken as an angry woman or there's, you know, some other negative connotation. So sometimes I have diminished myself or made myself smaller to try Mm -hmm. and fit better with the culture and the environment that I was in rather than shining to my full potential. And so I love that you've developed that and you have that skill set. I think more of us benefit benefit from that. I agree with you, but it's also in moderation. I think that that comes with reading a room as well. Like I Mm -hmm. learned not to be like, for instance, yes, I'm super extroverted, right? I've never met a stranger, but (laughs) I often (laughs) at the same time have very introverted siblings, which is very helpful being a one of five. And they're always like, Heather, you're at a 10. I need you at a two, right? So I read the room, okay? If it's getting a little too loquacious, I will definitely <laughs> dial it back, right? So I think that it, everything in moderation a bit, especially mm-hmm. with big personalities like I have. But also I do think that, yes, there are definite times where you feel like you can't be your full authentic mm-hmm. self, right? And that's a sad part about research and just being a black female period to be honest like it's just it's part of it but I've learned to I don't want to say compartmentalize it but I've learned to compartmentalize other people's opinions Hmm. people's opinions of me is not my business (laughs) like that's good validation is for parking and not people like I just am in the of the mindset that it's like at this point in time I've earned a seat at that place that table that arena. And I'm not going to allow anyone to diminish my light or what I have to give. And that is just, it's a new boldness, right? And it's not to say that you're always in this bold space. You're like, yeah, I can do anything. But I've learned to say, okay, yeah, that didn't work. That's okay. That grant didn't work out or that position or that opportunity, but we're going to, we're going to switch gears and that's okay. Right. So that's just sidebar. I think one of the things about that though, is that as I've gotten older, not necessarily chronologically older, but as I've gone up in my scientific career, Mm -hmm. 
I've come to recognize that there are going to be times when you are not going to be surrounded by people that will allow you to do that. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You always have to, you know what I mean? Like hundred percent, you always have to do it because what I have found is it doesn't matter to them what you're doing, right? Like Mm -hmm. if they don't want you in that space, they're going to try to find a way to keep you out of that space. And Uh if you're quiet, it's because you're too quiet. And if you talk, it's because you talk too much. And if you're kind of in the middle, it's because, well, I mean, you don't really stand out one way or another. I mean, I'm not saying like anything about what you're saying is wrong, but it's just, I definitely have run into moments where I kind of had to step back and realize like, I have no control over what else is going to happen in this room, but you have to be a little bit aware of what other people's opinions are. I think when it comes to things like, well, yeah, you have to be aware of the opinions. And that's what I think you're saying the same thing in the sense that it's, even if you're not meant for that space, because being a black scientist, being a female scientist, you're a square trying to fit into a circle. There's so few of us that you weren't actually meant for that Mm -hmm. space in the first place. And there are several rooms, especially in institutions that I've trained at, where I am the one and only. And I know that my people's perceptions that may exist, but I also believe in the fact that regardless of what their opinion may be, whether you perceive it or you actually actually physically see someone's aggressions or microaggressions, it still doesn't matter to the point where you stop being yourself. And that's the point I'm making. Completely, completely. Because anyway, you're you never going to Like you said. Yeah, you're, you're never not. going to satisfy them. And that's the point, right. I've learned to not care if I didn't, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> as long as I'm, I'm big on inclusion. If I didn't offend someone, then I've done my job, right? I didn't, as long as we're not offending people, be yourself, right? And just keep it moving. Like, you know, but I agree. It's not as easy as I'm making it sound. It has its problems, but yeah, big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So along those lines, are there any experiences or challenges that you've either seen or experienced yourself where you felt like your gender played a role? For example, in some of my experience, thankfully not any of my recent experiences, I have been in situations where whatever experiment I was doing, if I presented the data as it is, the experimental design, whatever, no matter what I did, how I phrased it, how articulate I may have been or not, it did not matter. It was not well received. So what I did is that I had a chat with a colleague who did not look like me complexion wise, and he was male. And I just asked him simply, I have this experiment or this data coming up. Would you mind presenting this, my data and the idea where I'm going? And I just want to see how it's received. And in that situation, what I found is when the exact same experiment, same ideological thought, same data was presented through a different filter, it was received in a much different light and it was well received. It got what I felt was fair critique. And in that element, was it fair that I had to do that? No, (laughs) like just point like no. However, I did find that was a strategy for me to get the feedback that I needed to move my project along and to get what I felt was a fair assessment of the ideas. And so for me, what I took from that was it helped solidify my confidence in my own ability to correctly draw experiments, to correctly interpret my data, draw proper conclusions, and come up with next steps. So even though it was not fairly received coming directly from my mouth, I did get a chance to have my own thoughts and my own patterns validated through it coming from someone who I would consider an ally for me in that space. So that was my experience of what I believe was gender bias. And I am African-American, so sometimes there is other elements that may come into play with that as well. But have either of you either seen or experienced a similar type of situation? Yeah, definitely. That's a heartbreaking story, though, because I think what it illustrates, right, and it's amazing that you had that experience and you kept going with your career because, you know, it illustrates that you were brave enough to believe in yourself and your own ideas. But what what happens to the person who is told repeatedly, this is not good science, this is not good work, you are not thinking correctly, you are not doing good work, and never gets anything but that. And that was what was so different when I changed labs and sort of moved into this different field, 
you know, I had been kind of struggling to get to be seen and to be heard. And I move into this different field and I bring my expertise in the kidney with me. And suddenly they were really interested in what I had to say and what I wanted to do. And what you're talking about is really the experience that I was referring to, which is really this suddenly like the skies opened up and there were no limitations yeah. that had been there before that I didn't even know were there before. Yeah. Right. I didn't even know that people were putting these caps on me in that way because I believed it. Yeah. You know, because I was told this very consistently, you won't get a K award. You're not going to get funded. You should go teach at a community college, which by the way, I yeah. did. And I love teaching at a community college. I got but, some of that feedback. Yes. Yeah. You know, you would be a great teacher. You explain things really well. You would be great. Well, I appreciate that. I take that and I receive it. However, that is not the career path that I see for myself. Right. And from that, I now for that particular person, I learned that they were not a good resource for me in giving unbiased feedback mm -hmm. on my actual progression and maturity at that stage in development. So one of the strategies that definitely helped me get through that experiment or experience was that I had other people who I would consider mentors and allies that I could go to and like, hey, I just experienced this situation. Here's what happened. Here's what I was told that doesn't agree with my own assessment of myself. Can you give me, you know, your take? And I had wonderful people who, if I was in the wrong or, hey, actually, I would have said the same thing. Here's why. So if it was a negative or somewhere where I needed growth, they were very awesome and took the time to actually explain to me, well, here are the areas and here's why I say you need adjustment in these things. Or if it were situations, and some of them I did have, where their assessment was not the same as that I heard from the other voice, they were upfront with me like, eh, you know what, I don't see the same things. If you want to be a career scientist, you want to be an academia, you want to be a professor, go for it. Don't, you know, throw that, I mean, thank them for their opinion, but you know, you keep the good and get rid of the bad keep it moving because I see something in you. And if you want to pursue this track, you have it in you to do. So I do think that is one of the areas where it's so important to have available mentors to you and to everybody, because that can make really, it can truly make or break. There's a reason why when you look at the statistics of women in academia, that at least in the U.S. alone, there's less than 40% of women in tenure track academic positions, and there's less than 21% of women who actually have tenure track faculty, who are tenure track faculty. Some of these things that we're talking about are the very reasons that explain those numbers. How many women have been in situations where they were discouraged to pursue the harder path to pursue the more rigorous path and become the leader of a laboratory and instead were encouraged. Well, you know, you have such a wonderful personality. You're so, you know, bright. Why don't you just go teach? Why don't you just go to this? And that is not to disparage or discourage anybody who is in a teaching position. Like you're very much needed, very much. Like some of my first and best mentors and encouragers were the lecturers that I had in undergrad. They saw through my insecurities, through my whatever, and encouraged me and really built me up and made me garner the confidence that carried me through the negative experiences that I've had to be able to sit here today and do what I do and do what I love. But it's so critical that we have available mentors, be they other women, be they sometimes, well, they can equally be men as well, but people who can speak to our experiences and speak past where we are presently speak to the growth and the potential that we have and help draw that out in a realistic and encouraging manner. Because we don't need people blowing up our heads. You know, if I can't even get beta acting to work on the Western Blot, please don't hype my head up <laughs> that I'm doing a good job. Come on. Like if right. it's a cell, it's got beta acting. It should it, like that's the best antibody out. Like it, it should be there. So we don't need people who will sell us pipe dreams that we truly don't have the capabilities to achieve. However, we also don't need people who are just, you know, beating us down day by day and discouraging and dampening the light within us. And I do think that, you know, at times is a fine balance. Those statistics that you mentioned are interesting because I think that kind of speaks to the experience that I've been having. Yeah. Where you do start to feel that bottleneck 
as you go up, you do start to kind of feel it and be more aware of it. You know, it's always such a dicey thing to talk about in a public space, like a podcast, right? Because I don't, you know, all my former mentors, you were all perfect and wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) To my current department, nothing is wrong. (laughs) You know, because you want to be supportive. You want people to like, you know, you want people to invest in you. You want you want to have people feel that you're invested in them. So it it's really hard to have these kinds of conversations because if you talk about what was challenging in your past, you're talking about real interactions with people. Right, right. You know? And so it's a, such a sensitive situation to kind of get into that. But It really is. Guys, I was curious, like, as this is something I've experienced a, a little bit, I'm also Black, but I'm biracial and I present very white. And so one of the things that I've experienced a little bit also is people telling me that I should like go back and give back to my community, right? Like that I don't need to stay here in academia because I I could better be supporting academia by encouraging the next generation of academics. And I think I've been wondering for how long women and minorities. Wait, have been I'm sorry. What does that mean? I, I'm yeah, sure. Was, um, so what it, what what it that is, mean? is you know, it's this idea, like I was part of this, you know, teaching and research fellowship program that's run by the NIH. And the idea is that you'll get minority faculty into undergraduate institutions, and that will encourage more undergraduates to see themselves as scientists, and then they'll go and be the scientists. Well, I think that plays into wherever you are, we're needed in every role. Exactly. Yes, you need it in the earlier stages to help increase the number that we'll see. But what happens to those students when they get in these graduate schools, when they get in these Well, then they're encouraged to go back and get the next generation to come back. Yeah. Right. And, and that's so what I'm saying. It's, it's like, a thief for how loop. long? Yeah, of no problem. Right. How long like, is that loop for? Is no. it like for 20 years? Do we send all the women and minorities back to the community? And then yeah. like, at what point do we get to stay and say, hello, this is my community. I'm here right now. This, yeah. I am a part of this community. We're, we're at every level. And I'm an integral part of it. And this is how it's going to be. And guess what? There's more of me coming. And we're absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> we're all here and we're here to stay. That is one thing that I greatly value about my current position in Dr. Hinton's lab in that outreach is very much as intentional a part of the research experience that we do as our scientific study of mitochondria. We but That is so rare. Yes, it is. It's so rare. I've never seen a lab like that lab where every single person in the lab is encouraged to participate in that. And I've never seen a lab with so many underrepresented in science in one place. I mean, I know outside mm-hmm. of like outside of like an HBCU, for example, yeah, right. obviously Missouri would be a different example. But even HBCUs aren't as diverse as you might think. They're not representative of United States minorities. Yeah, fair. Yeah. Fair. So yes, but I can so, <laughs> so to me that really speaks to what can be accomplished with the intentionality of how you design your academia. So there is academia as a whole. There are definitely systems in place and we do in part have to fit into the overall plan of it. But there are definitely ways that when you have things that are very passionate to you, things are very valuable to you, you can absolutely still shine and incorporate your passions into what you do. And so our lab, I feel that's one of the things that I love most about it is that we are very intentional in our giving back to the communities that are very near and dear to our heart. And does it make it more difficult? Heather can attest, yes. <laughs> it absolutely increases the workload of what we have to do. However, it fulfills that rewarding part. And in that work that we do, we still see the younger generations. We still mentor those coming up at every level. And we're still doing that work and doing it as successful scientists in academia, in faculty positions, at top tier institutions. The only way to accomplish that is not to just go back to be a pure lecturer. It's not just in the classroom. You can very much and is very needed to reach people at every level, every position in academia, because we're not monoliths. There are some people coming up. They don't want to run their own lab. They don't want to be a professor. They may not want to do industry. Maybe I just want to be a bench scientist. I just want to get in my dark room, I want to sit at my microscope and I want to image these cells, you know? So being in positions where you can see everybody and encourage what 
is passionate in their heart where they see themselves and still do that. And then having them see us stand where we envisioned ourselves, living out our own dream, demonstrating that it's possible that we can be all of these things that we are. We can be women, we can be minority, we can be whatever we are, and we can be successful scientists in the position that we want to be in, not where somebody told us we had to be. And that's one of the things that is one of my sticking points. Like, thank you for your opinion. You just now motivated me to do the opposite of what you said. (laughs) And now I'm going to double down. You meant to discourage me. Now I'm going to double down on the goal that I have for myself because I have to prove you wrong. (laughs) Right. And one thing I want to touch on that Mariah said, which is so important. Yes, representation matters. 100%. But visibility is not the only thing that helps a student be successful in STEM. And they forget that part. That's the difference, right? Because as a mentor, you are literally giving of your time. Just Friday, I had four, four peer mentorship um, Zoom calls. And do I have enough work for 10 postdocs? Absolutely. (laughs) Plus more right? But it's so important for me because they needed help with something that's such a a strong suit for me, which is like, you know, giving a talk, giving a presentation, figuring out what it is, right? We all have our strengths and our weaknesses. And for me, it's like, listen, I can't spend an hour with you today, but I have 30 minutes. Give me one second. Let me go, you know, drop my kid off at daycare. Mm -hmm. And then I got you. It's going to be an early meeting, girl, but let's get this set, right? (laughs) And, but mentorship is beyond, oh, I saw a black professor. So now I know I can do it. And I think that they think that that's how that works. It doesn't work like that. Yes. There's so many experiences where I saw someone and was like, oh, that's cool. But I never was like, yeah, definitely. Just because I once saw you, <laughs> that's the career I want. And I think that that's something that they forget, especially for us as minorities, is that we also need mentors, plural. We need someone yes. that can do different things because everyone has strengths and every mentor has a little, you know, a few weaknesses, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> it just becomes a point where I just want to emphasize that there's so much more than just visibly seeing someone, but actually understanding their path. You know, like I was so inspired by both of your stories, Andrea, just hearing about what you experienced with the data. I haven't personally experienced that gender bias, right? But I'm also very junior in my career. I'm in the second year of my postdoc, right? So there's time. It's going to come because that's life, right? But it's like, okay, and what can I learn from this experience? I learned that the amazing staff scientists our lab who's very successful went through this at one point in time okay so let me figure out how to tread this water right and the same thing with mariah like oh my goodness like you dropped out of high school what? Like, right and sitting in the professorate come on how prolific is she right like yeah. how prolific is she at this point how much do i look up to her as an amazing scientist it's like okay we had a minor setback, right? But that was a setback to setting us up for this comeback, right? Like we're we're ready for it to go now. This is showtime. And part of that time that took you to get there is because you were bringing everybody up along the way. Right, right. It's so nice to hear you say that, Heather. And it's so funny because you're somebody, even though you're junior to me, that I look to and admire because of exactly the things that you talked about, because you're very unapologetic but not in a way that's, you know, showy or rude, or, I mean, you just, you are yourself and you're very pro, you're very pro Heather, but you're very pro science and you're very pro other women. And I think that that is something that we really have to touch on. Yeah. I've been to space where I wasn't championed, right? Like I've been that student, that grad student that no one ever talked about their awards or their accomplishments. So I know how that feels. So it's so important for me to make sure that whoever it is, they get the exact same opportunities that I have. We're not crabs in a barrel. We're lifting each other up, right? Like we're going to sharpen one another. And that's important. It's peer mentorship too, right? We're we're close enough. We're colleagues, right? Like this, we're supposed to be all in this together, right? (laughs) Not like this hierarchy of, oh, I made it and get your good luck. It's supposed to be different. And I think that that is one of the one of the real things that happens to women as you go up through yes. your career. And minorities, there's an idea that there is a certain number of spaces available to us. Yes. And we are given the narrative that we must compete for the woman space, the minority space. Right. There's only so many there's only so much room, right? And what I want people to hear is that there is infinite space for you here. Yes. And 
And you may not be able to see it because people will put mirrors in front of it and screens around it. And -hmm. they will try to make you not be able to see that that space is here for you. But it is here for you. And, you know, you just have to find the people that can help you step around those barriers. I mean, the person that really got me to where I am now is, you know, a 70 year old white male, definitely entrenched part of the system. Right. But he saw me and like really supported me. And, you know, it's not always going to come from the places that you think, but don't, whatever you do, do not cut each other down. Yes. Like uh-uh. there's just, you'll never get anything from it. There, you'll never get anything from it. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that because it is a, we have to be in these spaces together because if you think about it, right, Andrea has way more experience in so many different fields before she came and um, took the amazing position of being our staff scientist, right? At the same time, Andrea is also developing her own career. What would it look like if I were like, mm, she's a black female, mm, I'm not going to help her, right? If she needed something, right. say in vitro work, right? Andrea does every mouse, right? She can slice, <laughs> dice a mouse and take it apart and put it back together, sew a new I've leg on it. it you I've know? seen it in my own lab. She flew out here and did that, right? In my own lab with something. But honey, she doesn't know anything about sales yet. Yet, I put a caveat because she can learn that too because she's a brilliant. So what am I like? Oh, well, good luck, girl. Get it how you get it, right? No, we got to support you. The girl, you need to run some sales. Okay, I got you. And I'm going to be like, hey, girl, can you run this plot? Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. I got you. I got you. We support one another because even though we are double minorities sitting here in this exact same space, oftentimes competing for the same positions, we have to still encourage one another and make sure yes. that we're not leaving each other behind because that's not fair you know like we're, we're supposed to do that like I feel like I feel very strongly about it. it's like a justice meter for me I feel like I have to make sure that nobody felt like I felt at certain times yes. during graduate school Absolutely. it's that important to me like it's a priority to not feel isolated and feel by yourself if I can help it I'm the one sitting in the bathroom with you okay <laughs> if I can help it absolutely girl, what, we're what we're eating let's eat together right so hey if you need a timeout come on let's go we'll go get a coffee we'll take a break oh, yeah talk about nothing science related let's patch it up pick ourselves up and then we're gonna get right back in there and yeah. if we were defeated we're gonna get victory I don't care how yes. many times we yes. gotta do it we're gonna mm-hmm. circle right back around and we will be successful like absolutely a long time ago with all the stress and graduate school and everything else, I determined that come hell or high water, I am going to succeed. That's right. That's right. Uh, success may not come the pathway that I thought it would be. And that's why I appreciated so much both of you sharing your pathway into your current positions, because it can be discouraging at times to think, well, this journey was supposed to look this way. It was supposed to be linear A to B to C to D, but I'm in Q prime somewhere and I don't know how I got here. And I think there are some Greek letters somewhere. So it's very, (laughs) it's very encouraging that we all have different stories. And even if your story is not the perfect story, it's still a valuable story. There's still place for you here and you can still very much accomplish what you want to accomplish if you don't give up. And I love the way that this conversation has gone because one of the things that I wanted us to discuss are what resources looking back and even now, do you think would have benefited your journey in different things? So whether that was needing mentorship or funding, uh, we discussed that briefly before, a lot of uh, success in academia is dependent on networking. And I appreciate every penny that I got as part of my graduate stipend. It was not enough to attend two or three conferences every year and stay in hotels that were safe (laughs) and be in places that I needed to be to get the exposure that I needed. Enough talking about me. But what resources or what things do you think would definitely benefit women in this academic journey? I think what you just said is a brilliant one. I mean, Everything that you guys have been talking about, what Heather's been saying about how she felt as a graduate student, you know, some of that external validation, right? And I appreciate that, like, you can plow through without it. But some of that external validation has to 
be external, right? Not everybody in your space all the time is going to be the right person mm-hmm. to mentor you yeah. all the time. That's something that I actually have been very afraid to take on a graduate student. I really need to get ready to start that because I'm so afraid of damaging them. <laughs> like, I'm really, you know, because you, you can't will do not damage everybody. anybody. You know? Yeah, you can't, but you, there's no way you damage them. Don't do I that. The fact that know. you're so conscientious of it is a good sign because that means that you will take those extra steps to I do your best to not do that. And it's the intentional mentoring into one of the papers that we have from our lab, AJ, it's intentional mentoring. Shameless plug. plug. I think that what I could have used, what would have helped Mm -hmm. me would have been more access to people outside of my, you know, my core mentorship, because, you know, when my core mentor wasn't able to see me in the way that I felt like I needed to be seen or mm-hmm. you know was capable of. I think meeting other people, going to meetings sometimes can yes. be very validating. People would talk to me as a scientist. They would not talk to me as the person who had disappointed them by screwing up an experiment three times right. in a row. Right. Right. And you know, it allowed me to kind of relax and and stop worrying about how I was presenting and just sort of be a scientist, which is all I ever really wanted in this sphere. You know, that's all I ever really wanted to do. And so I think having access to those kinds of experiences, and I just want to make a plug for something, Mm -hmm. which is that they are not that expensive. Departments will say like, oh, we can't send everybody. Mm -hmm. You know what? The difference for people, like the difference that like $500 can make for someone to have travel money, a thousand dollars to have travel money is such a huge impact on their year and such a minor impact on your department. And please do those things. Absolutely. (laughs) Departments, please. Anybody who's in a position of power, that is very key. Because as a graduate student, that's like dating myself. That would have been majority of my rent just to go to a conference. I remember one conference, my mom actually paid for me to be able to go that year because it would have been $1,000 to go between the hotel Three of us got together. We actually drove to the location. So we drove from Birmingham, Alabama to Washington, D.C., <laughs> trying to save a buck. Wow. But um, having a travel like fund or travel stipend like would have made a world of difference in our experience. But I'm very thankful that my family, I had a resource in my family that I could rely on that helped support my career because that was a pivotal thing. So I got that exposure at the conference and I could see, you know, and that was to Society of Neuroscience. It is mind boggling to walk in a space and see like 3000 posters set up at once every day, consistently the entire week. Mm -hmm. And to see all variety of people from all backgrounds, all walks, being themselves, talking about science in shorts, you know, and that was one of the things I love. The society is so huge that you have everybody from, they look like field biologists with the long hair and the shorts walked straight out of the seventies, all the way to, you know, people with every color hair doing what they do, edgy, you know, on top of fashion, all the way to the medical doctors in the three-piece suit and everything. But we were all commingling together, sharing ideas, exchanging, and we were all being science as one. And I feel like that is such a powerful experience. And it's such, to me, an humbling experience because it takes you out of that day-to-day grind that you get into as a graduate student. And even sometimes as a postdoc, you're so focused on your project and this one thing that isn't working and I have this deadline to hit or whatever, to be able to take a moment, pause, get out of that, and then just see all the awesomeness that's going around, talk to other people, figure out what things people know but haven't published yet. That's another important thing, why being able to have the opportunity to go to these research conferences in your subject matter and field are critical because you get all this information that you can't just look on a journal in PubMed, which, you know, a lot of schools, depending on what journals your school subscribes to, also limits your field view of what you have access to. And without that mentoring that can give you the tips and tricks that, oh, did you know that if you email the corresponding author nine times out of 10, they'll email you the paper for free instead of trying to pay $50 to get this paper that's critical for your dissertation and not knowing what you're going to do because it's either groceries for the month or (laughs) get this paper so that I can graduate. So definitely funding and resources that in all respect 
are little when compared to the departmental budget, but for the students and the people at impacts can make a huge impact. So I definitely agree that access to mentorship and access to funds to do things, and even being aware of, depending on your society, there are many societies that have travel awards. I know for myself, as I was going through graduate school, I didn't know that I could look for those things. I didn't know that I could apply for those things. So there were years where I could have been attending critical conferences and getting enmeshed in my my field for the free, not for the free, you know, the society would have been paying for it, but essentially for the free to me, that would have made a world of difference to my trajectory. But I didn't know, and I didn't know to look. And then the place that I was, I was not getting the mentorship to go and look and observe those things. So having resources available, even if it's not at the level of the PI, and I do understand that as faculty, you have a lot of responsibility and a lot of things on your plate. And it can be difficult if you are supposed to be the guardian of every piece of information out there and every resource. That's difficult. But if the schools can have places where they have these resources available, if departments, you know, because typically in departments, there are certain societies that you're all associated with or we all go to these things. Someone at the departmental level or the school level having these things available, that can make truly a world of difference in the outcomes of your trainees and hopefully impinge on these numbers that are kind of dismal at this point. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I was kind of discouraged when I heard that only 21% of tenured faculty were female and the percentage of grants, NIH grants awarded to women has only increased 15% in the last, what, 20 years? (laughs) That was a little, that hit me in the feels. But, you know, I feel like there's certain smaller things that can have a very big impact along the way that can help improve those numbers in the long run. You're a mama. And I know because I know personal things about you (laughs) that you became a mom in graduate school. And that is, I think, you know, I'm a mother myself and we, we actually have daughters that are very close in age, Mm -hmm. Peppa Pig age, but (laughs) you know, I, I did not go through that in graduate school and I, I barely got through it. The early stages of motherhood, I barely got through it as a, you know, as an acting instructor. And I cannot imagine having to get through that in graduate school. And I think that, you know, obviously, you know, other parents, not just birth parents experience a big kind of life-changing shift and setback, but I think it can be more challenging, you know, for women. And so what, What was that like for you? And I guess what would have made life easier during that time? Did you get the support you needed, I guess, is really the question. Yeah. And that's where I would say, and what I think I'm echoing for you all as well is support and resources, investing in the person, the trainee, that's what's most critical. So yeah, you're right. I had her right after candidacy. So that's the middle, after second year. So I barely got my feet wet in the lab, you know? So first thing would be, I had to have a supportive mentor, right? Because that's, I think, the most crippling moment for me was having to tell somebody, by the way, (laughs) my husband and I uh, got great news. You know, I'm not going to be here for a few months, you know. So anyway, the point is, it was good. I actually was in the lab until 39 weeks. So I literally, I only took off like two days and then I had her, so it was perfect. But the point I'm making is, one, my PI was super supportive and he also had kids in grad school. So ding, 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 winner, winner, <laughs> chicken dinner, right? Like I, I got exactly what I needed on that front. But also I had financial resources that were helpful, right? So one thing that I benefited from, which is actually how I know Mariah, guys, is <laughs> academic research moms, right? People forget that a small amount of money, we're talking 500 to $1,000, that is like winning, finding the golden ticket in a chocolate bar, Willy Wonka style, like getting that amount of money in grad school to support you, to offset a cost, to think about these things. So that was helpful. I'm grateful to have parents that could, you know, support me. Right. So I've never had to buy a diaper until she was probably one years old. Like that was a blessing. Like I got so many things from my baby shower, all of my friends, I got so many resources that I didn't see the stress, but academically, I always feel like in the back of my mind, could I have been more productive? Could I have gotten more done? And I think 
that was what drove me. And I think that's what made me kind of this person that people may perceive as like, oh, she's super confident, has the other stuff. No, I'm just resourceful. Like I had to be very diligent. Like for instance, you know, when I was down for those few months, I couldn't go into the lab. Like I didn't have childcare at all. So the first two years of my daughter's life, I literally had to work nights or super early in the morning Plus trying to finish a whole PhD in biomedical sciences. You guys do the math. We're not doing computational research. You know, this is hardcore experimentation, right? (laughs) But we made it work. And the reason is I had financial resources like ARM, right? But it also had support of my mentor. And thirdly, I had a support of my parents, right? Like I would call my mom, mom, I'm stressed, you know, or call my husband like, oh my goodness, like I can't do it today. And it's like, you know what? We're going to find a way to do it. And I had really good friends. One of my best friends literally was like, okay, I'm going to teach you how to code. I'm going to teach you how to do these scripts because that'll help you get this part of your project done. So you can at least help with that. And that's how we had a code first author paper. Like she was like, you're not going to struggle by yourself. So it wasn't just, I had resources all around support all the way around. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what helped make the difference. So I didn't feel like it sounds crazy to say, but it wasn't that difficult because I had, I never felt like I was by myself. And that's what makes it so different. You know, now I'm like, like, I wouldn't do that again. But, you know, it had its moments where I really felt like, what am I doing? But it didn't feel as bad as it may look from the outside looking in. Because I had such a foundation and had people that were investing in me, right? From classmates to family to, you know, academic resources. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what made the difference. Absolutely. And I think those are key things that you highlighted. Community really does play a huge role in understanding that not everybody may have all of those components. And that's where drawing back to equality versus equity, it's not enough just that everybody has an equal opportunity to have kids or to be in a laboratory or whatever. There needs to be understanding and equity because what if you don't have family or if your family's 3,000 miles away? Right. Which mine was. It's difficult. Yeah. I want to bounce off of what you just said about equity and and equality. And I just, because this comes up all the time, and I just want to remind people that giving someone what they need doesn't mean, like, we have this idea that there's there's a finite pot of money, there's mm-hmm. a finite pot of time, there's a finite pot of mentorship. Mm-hmm. And sure, I mean, to a point, but the reality is that giving somebody what they need does not mean that somebody else does not get enough or what yes yeah and there's this whole sort of like but it's not fair it's not fair if this person gets a little bit more that why does the other person down the hall have what they need to do what they need to do yes what difference is it making if someone else is getting the extra five hundred dollars because they had a kid for example and that's I come like I, I run into that a lot when I try to talk about resources for childcare, and it's like, but it's not fair for the people that aren't getting these extra resources and they don't have a kid. And, you know, I didn't have a kid before I had a kid, like, and I didn't, it never once would I have thought to myself, like, I don't want my colleagues to get $750 to offset their childcare because where's my 750? I didn't need that same offset. Maybe I needed something else. Right. And And by the way, can you speak on what national averages for childcare are nowadays? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I haven't looked recently when I started when, you know, we, the academic research mom started the arm fund it was something on the order of like 2,500 a month. Yeah. Is more than a graduate stipend. That's more than your stipend. I heard recently numbers, I think in Boston and some other places like that, annual childcare is over $30,000 a year. Yeah, that's sounds oh, yeah. about right. And you can't even write that all off. Like that's the crazy thing. And, you know, we have the collaboration, of course, um, on the nature, I forget, it's nature, right? Nature um, Spotlight, Mariah, yeah. that's what it is for the mm-hmm. child care fund. So Frankie Hayward, who's also part of that, he and I share the governing board for National Black Postdoc Association. And we talk about this all the time because they have a fund that's very similar to academic research moms because of the Boston thing that you're talking mm-hmm. about. 
I mean, the amount of childcare, like as a grad student, I mean, these numbers aren't private. You're looking at maybe $1,700 a month. Yeah. If your childcare, and let's be very clear, Nashville's childcare is astronomical compared to what you're taking it. Not only that, it wasn't that I didn't have childcare because I couldn't afford it. I couldn't even get access to it. Yes, that's I was on the wait list for seven and eight months. So what was I supposed to say? Okay, I think I'm going to have a kid next year. Put me on the wait list. Like I'm thinking of conceiving in the near future. Let me just go ahead and pay you this $200 deposit for a kid that I don't even know exists yet. So right. that's the issue. It's accessibility is an issue. And then you add on top of that, this compounding factor of financial strain. And you're like, what am I supposed to do with that? And I've never been like, I've never said to someone, oh my goodness, you shouldn't have this because <laughs> like that baffles me when people feel like that, but I know it's so common, mm-hmm. you know? It's also, I think for the, for the universities, for the institutions and the departments, I mean, you know, this whole idea that like, you can't do anything unless you can do everything is also, I think, really wrong. And I think it, I think that is one place where we seriously hold women and minorities back. This idea of like, we can't fix all of the things. So we're going to just sit here and have one more conversation and 10 more committee meetings, right. and 20 more committee meetings until we can figure out how to perfectly fix everything. And, you know, that's why we started the Arm Fund. It was like, just do something, just do anything, move forward something, one step. I think that's another thing that happens a lot for for women in science is this sort of this sort of idea that, you know, letting perfection be the enemy of good, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, that's so true. And I echo what you're saying because it's happening at the institutional level, right? Because at some form or fashion, there's no reason why every academic institution doesn't have bare minimum childcare facilities for their staff, faculty, and students. That just doesn't make sense. It really would. It would benefit the bottom line, right? And then not only that, but not only do they not, if they do actually have childcare facilities, you can't actually get access. So yeah, it's we like have a nine. A I think we have like a nine hundred kid wait list at the UW. Wow. It's a moot point, you know. <laughs> it's like you tell me that, oh yeah, well we have these resources, but our wait list is a year and a half. What do I do with a year and a half? What do I do with that information? Yeah. And then I have to find a way to pay for it on top of that. Like, it's not a free <laughs> way, you know? Um, I mean, there's other financial resources for students. Like, you know, Tennessee, for instance, they have like these financial um, things that they provide to people for students, of course, for childcare. But once again, you still have to find a daycare that's willing to accept this resource. And then, you know, is it safe for your kid? You know, and don't add in the fact that kids get sick as soon as they walk in that door. It's like RSV slaps them in the face as soon as they walk into the daycare facility. So, you know, forget this illness that then affects the parent who can't do the science anyway, because either they're taking care of the sick kid or they're sick themselves. So there's so many issues <laughs> that we haven't even touched on for women. In STEM. Yeah, I'm, I'm currently quite sick with my child's most recent daycare. <laughs> Well, you're, you're playing it off. You, you're, you're, you know, I don't hear any of the nasal congestion, so that's excellent. <laughs> In case people thought I was a 10-pack-a-day smoker. <laughs> I know. Well, I thank you both for joining us. This has been a wonderful conversation. I think there are a lot of golden points that we've hit on, and definitely we can do better as academics. In academia, There's so much good that we can do. And I love the point that you brought up, Mariah. It does not have to be an all or none situation. We don't have to try and take on the large burden of everything that's wrong at once. We can start in our local areas, pick one thing and make action in one area. And then as we make action in one area, pick up another and doing it all as a community, as a group, I think is another thing so that no one person has all of the impetus of the magnitude of this issue on their one's shoulders. And I think that's one of the best ways that we as a community, as a whole, can elevate and bring equity to academia. So thank you. I love everyone. that. <laughs> Very well said. Very well said. <laughs> 
It was so fun to talk to you guys. I really, I wish we lived closer. <laughs> that would be so awesome. I love it. Well, maybe we can. I mean, we can just start our own institution, right? Like, <laughs> I have a research lab. You know, we could do some. Hey, do collaboration. We can do. Right. Andrea came out here, and it was a lot of fun. It was the best. (laughs) Yeah, it was a really good time. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity and the invitation. And I hope that I hope that we were encouraging, right? I hope that other women, and especially other Black and Brown women here, that no, it's not easy. No, it's not a space that's designed for you. But go ahead, come on. Yeah, come on. We're here now. (laughs) Come on, come on. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. Bye, you guys. Bye. Thank Bye. you.